0: we'll be in John chapter 4. If you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 4. I recently saw a man asking questions on the street. He was asking college students questions about history, about government. One of the questions was, "Can you tell us when the the Revolutionary War was?" What just within 100 years or so when the Revolutionary War was. He had a hard time finding one person who knew about when the Revolutionary War was. Um, Well, there was a man who served the church before the Revolutionary War named John Witherspoon. There's actually a, a pamphlet downstairs if anyone would like to read more about John Witherspoon. We'll be talking about service to God Uh, We all have a place to serve in God's kingdom uh, and we all have a role in the kingdom of God and we should never think small thoughts about what that role is. Who knows how many of you are here because you had a a grandmother or a great-grandmother or a great-great-grandmother who spent her days praying for her children and grandchildren and God has honored that prayer by bringing you to himself. Who knows? We will never know until heaven. John Witherspoon was a university president uh, at Princeton, and little did he know that the Little College of New Jersey, which had been founded for people who were intent on becoming ministers, would be fundamental to the establishment of our country. Of the graduates, he trained a generation of, of students. Of the graduates of the College of New Jersey, trained by John Witherspoon. Thirteen became college presidents themselves. Twenty were officers in the Continental Army. Twenty-three were judges. Three were U.S. Supreme Court justices. Twenty-one were senators in the United States Senate. Thirty-nine were part of the House of Representatives. This is one man and his students. Twelve were governors. One was an American vice president. And one was a president. So you think, wow, I don't think God would ever use me quite like that. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And really, it's none of our business. Just like Elijah, just like John Witherspoon, our duty is to be faithful to God, to be concerned with the things of God. Jesus teaches his disciples that they should be concerned mostly with the things of God and not with the things of the earth. I'll be reading in verses 28 through 40. This is John 4, 28 through 40. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Let us turn to the Lord again in prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humbly come before your throne once again and asking for wisdom that our hearts might be open to understand this word, that our consciences might be softened to receive this word, that we might be changed and be bold in our witness for You. Be encouraged in our service to You. And that You might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be talking about service to God. Service to God. Jesus is teaching His disciples something about service to God. Indeed, I think this woman, this woman at the well who had been married five times and who was living with someone who was not her husband, that she's also teaching us something about service to God. So I'm going to talk to you quickly about six things. Well, maybe it's not so quickly. I'm going to talk to you about six things that we see uh, as related to our service to God from this text. One thing that interests me also when we notice um, uh, this text is how Jesus uses just in in his relation to these people, he just uses normal, everyday things to bring up spiritual issues. He's talking about normal life. Uh, southerners are known for storytelling. One of my favorite storytellers was named John Henry Falk. Uh, he's dead now, but he spent a decade telling stories on television. I think he was on Hee Haw for many, many years. But before that, he was already famous as a storyteller. And if you listen to his stories, one thing you'll notice, his stories are just about life. They're just about normal, everyday things. And yet he's able to turn those normal things into something that are really humorous or or insightful, uh, maybe poignant in some way, maybe showing our own cynicism about life. Jesus seems to use normal, everyday things too. And that's one of the, the wonders about what Jesus did. Notice before that Jesus came to the woman and he asked her what? For a drink. And then he turned this, this 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 thought of water into a spiritual lesson for her. That she needed living water. And now the disciples come to him with bread and they want him to eat bread. Here, eat your bread, Jesus. Rabbi, eat this bread. We know you're hungry. They've been traveling for three or four days by now. He's very tired. He sat down by the well because he was... Um, tired and weary from the journey and they want him to eat. And now he takes not water, but bread and he turns that into a, a lesson, a spiritual lesson for his disciples that he came to do the will of his Father to enlarge the kingdom of God. Not to fill his belly with bread. That wasn't his first priority. Indeed, when we pray, give us our daily bread we're praying for our physical sustenance for sure. But we're also praying something deeper that God would fill all of our needs as a good shepherd, and He will. Jesus always lived with His eyes on His Father and He teaches His disciples to do the same. So the first thing I want us to notice when we look at our service to God as seen in verses 28-30, through 30. the first requirement to serve God well is to know Jesus. know Jesus. The woman had met Jesus. And it seems that she has been converted. We don't know everything that she has been told by Jesus. It seems that John is summarizing this conversation that she had with him. But regardless, she left her water jar, it says in verse 28, and went into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this Be the Christ. Those who are effective for the kingdom of God, first of all, know Jesus. It seems like it's it's a simple thing. It seems like it should be obvious. How many ministers of the gospel have ministered in churches and not really had faith in Jesus? There have been many. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for half of his life, didn't even know Jesus, he was converted after he was a minister. But then we see the effects of His regeneration on the church in Germany. We see the effects of this woman's regeneration, her new birth, and her desire to go and tell what she's, been, what she's become known of. The willingness to leave behind everything. This is one of the things that we see in those who know Jesus. It's the first requirement of service to Jesus. She left behind her pride, her conceit, her selfishness. She had a great zeal for the Lord. She was so excited she left her water jar. She had a desire to share with others. You might be thinking to yourself, yes, but she's just met Jesus and she's newly converted and certainly people who are new converts have a zeal that the rest of us just don't have. You can't expect all of us to act like that. Well, remember the The Lord speaking to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. He he rebukes them because they have lost their first love. There is a sense when new converts certainly have a zeal for the Lord, but there's also a sense that we all should, should be striving to maintain a zeal for the Lord. And this woman is going into the city uh, that she's at, Sychar. And remember, she's probably at the well all by herself because the other ladies wouldn't accept her. She wasn't comfortable with the other ladies. This is a sinful woman. She's been married five times. And she's living with a man who's not her husband. So you can imagine the other ladies not wanting anything to do with her. So these women and these people who apparently had avoided her and whom she had wanted to avoid as well, now she's going straight to them. She's going straight to these people in this town and she's telling them. Maybe she had a a strong desire to avoid them up until now, but now she goes to them and tells them the truth. She's not going to shut up her mouth, as David said. She's going to declare His praise. This is our call as well. You might think, well, certainly she she still struggled with her sin. Well, she probably did. And so will we continue to struggle with sin. But we have something that's powerful, and that's the Spirit of Christ in us. Thomas Chalmers wrote a wonderful little pamphlet called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, he describes how all of our old sins and tastes and interests and desires for the world, the flesh and the devil, the pleasures that this world has to offer us and all the sin that so easily entangles. All of this is now being overcome by a new affection. And that new affection is Jesus. This is our sanctification. The Holy Spirit of Christ is in us and is sanctifying us. So, those who tell me, well, I've been struggling with pornography for 25 years, the first thing that comes to my mind is you don't know Jesus. You know about him, maybe, but you don't know him. Because if you knew him, that love for Christ is going to overflow. And yeah, you might still struggle, but in 25 years, you're going to see some difference. And if you don't, you need to look somewhere deeper. And that's that way for every sin that we have in our lives. The Holy Spirit is going to change us and your love for Christ is going to constantly be pushing you to want to please your Father. This is what we see in this woman. She immediately leaves her water jar and she goes and she tells these people what Jesus has done for her. She has a new affection in her life. And that new affection is Jesus. And that's the key for all evangelism. We said the first key to our service to God is to know Jesus The key to everything we do in life and all of our lives are meant to be worship and evangelism for Jesus in some way. It's a focus on Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Point to Jesus. And I know many of you have told me this. Well, I'm not good at evangelism. Like, I might need to read a book or take a course. and Those things are probably fine. This dear woman had no courses on evangelism. Did she? She hadn't read any books on evangelism. Reaching the lost. She hadn't gone to a conference to learn the best new techniques. She had no witnessing classes in Sunday school. And so far in the gospel, she's the singular, most effective witness to Christ. This woman, what did she do? She just went to talk about Jesus with everyone she knew. So, certainly, don't be afraid certainly don't be ashamed to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said that we will be shouting it from the rooftops what He's done. So that's the first thing we see about our Christian service. And it's a lesson that's taught by this woman rather than Christ. And that's that knowing Jesus is the first step to serve God in any capacity at all. If you don't know Jesus, your service will be rotten in some way. Second thing we see in verses 31 through 34 is our motivation for service, our faithfulness in our service. Our motivation is to serve God faithfully, to please Him. This is Jesus' conversation with the disciples. The disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought Him something to eat? See, our hunger, our thirst, our lunch schedules, all of these things are secondary. We need to allow God, like Jesus did, allow God to to alter our schedules. You know, we all wake up in the morning and we have most of us have a plan. Well, I know I'm doing this here, I'm doing this here, and then I'll do this, and then I'm going to... But when something interrupts that plan, often it's not welcome. And for worldly things, I understand, but when it's something that God has ordained, when He has put, and God has ordained everything, of course, when He's put someone new in your life and your schedule is altered, you need to welcome that. You're mission-driven, not schedule-driven. That's what we'd say in the Air Force. We're mission-driven. The schedule's important, but the mission's more important. John Calvin wrote of this verse, we must take care not to adhere so firmly to our fixed hours as not to be prepared to deprive ourselves of food when God holds out to us any opportunity. The thirsty woman left her pitcher. We can expect no less from our Lord. He leaves aside His food, His lunch. We still don't know if He's had any water. You remember when Satan tempted him with his hunger, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. And he instructs them to this point in verse 34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. He's mission driven. And to finish His work or to accomplish His work. There's nothing on earth that He delights more than doing His Father's will. Nothing. He came to finish the work, not to fill his belly. And even when he is hungry, he's focused on the work of God. His delight is in the salvation of his people. He's mission driven. In John 6, he says this as well. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is his mission that I should lose nothing of all He has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You see, God had given the Son a particular people, and He came to earth to save that people. And He had to go to Sychar, and He had to go to that well, because God had given Him some people there. When you go out, You don't know if God has placed some of the elect in that crowd or in that group that you're talking to, but you're to be faithful as this this woman was. You're to be faithful as Christ was and talk about the good news that you have in Christ. Jesus was mission-driven, not schedule-driven, not the lust of His flesh driving Him. Mission-driven. And He was going to finish His work Again, this is an example for us. He's going to finish His work. All through the Gospels, we see a man who is committed to finish. And he knew why he was born. Why was he born? Why was he born? To die. He was born to die. And he knew it. And when his disciples would say, no, no, don't don't go to Jerusalem. Peter was even rebuked. He said, get behind me, Satan. He was going to finish this. Luke 12, he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, talking about his death. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Not distress that it was coming, but until he finished it. He had to finish. He told Peter, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're not mission driven, Peter. You're driven by something else. John 12, 27, He says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? It's not saying that it's easy for Jesus to do what He did. It wasn't. He says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. You've been put on the earth for a reason as well. Your reason is not as critical or important as Jesus, for sure. For sure but you've been put on earth for a reason. You have a purpose on earth. Are you going to fulfill your purpose like Christ? Or are you going to run from it? It gave Jesus glory and His Father glory when He accomplished the work that had been given Him. John 17, the high priestly prayer, He's talking to the Father and He says, I've glorified You on earth by accomplishing the work You gave Me. Each one of us should be able to say in our lives too, Father, I've glorified You on earth by accomplishing the work You gave me. Just like Christ set His face like flint for Jerusalem, we should set our face like flint for heaven. So I want to ask each one of you, we've talked about this for years now, that our job in this world is to glorify God, to live each day as unto His glory. Do you do anything for the Lord's kingdom? I'm not talking about stuff you do here in the church. I'm talking about for the spiritual kingdom of God. Of course, they're related. Are you living for the Lord's kingdom? Like this woman? Are you living like Christ to build His kingdom? Do you shine your lights and spread His salt? Or do you just go do your work, do your stuff, and call it good? Are you going to finish the race like Paul? Are you going to say, I fought the fight. I finished the race. And we often think that, you know, when we're racing, it should be like a nice, flat, padded track. Has anyone run on a track recently? When I was young, the tracks were just hard. It was like running on concrete. Now this is squishy stuff, right? It just You, you kind of feel like a carpet when you're running. No wonder they run so fast. That's kind of what we think our race is like. We're running on this nice, pristine, squishy carpet. When really it's more like a combination of cross-country and steeplechase. You're getting dirty, you're getting wet, you're getting hurt, you're falling down. And yet still we're called to finish that race. Jesus lived not for food or family or His status or His comfort or any other reason but to glorify His Father. I know some people whose whose whole goal in life is just stay alive. I better do all these things because I don't want to stay alive. I better do this because I want to stay alive. Life is more than just continuing to breathe, brothers and sisters. Life is more than just my heart's beating. To be truly alive is to live for God how many wonderful saints that we now honor throughout the years died in an early age, 20s or 30s or 40s. But they truly live because they live to glorify God. So we need to have a purpose like Christ, a mission-driven focus to be faithful to God, to take up our cross daily and follow Him, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices every day. I would say to you, wake up each morning and before you put one foot out of the bed, stop and pray. Just train yourself every morning to pray. Lord, let me glorify You this day. Show me how I might glorify You. Help me to focus on my mission and not on myself. So we see that you have to know Jesus. We also see that you have to have good motivation. But thirdly, we see that there's a great urgency for our service Not just pastors, not just elders, not just evangelists, all of us. There's an urgency in our service. Verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Again, look how Jesus just uses normal things. He's using normal life to explain spiritual truths. Back then, most people were somehow related to farming. So he's talking about the time of harvest. He's talking about the farming cycle. And he says, the the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for the harvest. Now certainly, he sees people coming from the town toward him. Maybe he's looking out at them and saying, look, disciples, the fields are white. Here they come. Now is the time for us to do our work. This is probably true. But he's also speaking a spiritual truth, which is for all of us. Southern theologian Robert Louis Dabney wrote this of this, this particular passage. The harvest of souls awaits no man's sluggishness. Death is a field with his flashing scythe, mowing down nations and gathering his sheaves for hellfire so that the work of redeeming love must be done at once or never. And this is the point of our Savior's reasoning. This is obviously true of each generation of sinners as it is to its own generation of Christian laborers on the supposition that the world is indeed subject to condemnation. There's an urgency because hell is eternal. There's an urgency because we don't live on this earth forever and we don't know the day of our death. There's an urgency that we go and we harvest. We do our part. Jesus had an urgency because He felt compassion for the people. In Matthew 9, He saw the crowds and He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. You're like, yeah, we need to pray for some missionaries. No, you need to go out and do the work. You're being equipped for ministry. Jesus cared for people. If you're wondering why you don't have that urgency to go out, you don't understand the the eternal nature of hell, the short nature of our lives, and all the, the compassion that you should have for the lost. There's an urgency in our mission to glorify God by shining and salting and harvesting to de- to delay the harvest. What happens when you delay your harvest? Your harvest is ready to be to be harvested your crop is ready to be harvested and you delay let's say you delayed a month. What happens to it It's ruined there's nothing left. You might as well turn the cows in Samaria was that a a, a seen as a ripe field for harvest by the Jews? No. This is encouraging to me too because the Samaria was thought to be just a wasted place. The harvest is so far gone with this place, just forget about it. Just leave them. It's worthless. You may look at our country and think, well, it's too far gone now. There's nothing left for us to harvest. We missed our opportunity. It's all wrong. There's a harvest even for us. We need to go out and be attentive to the mission God has given us. Jesus is saying, you're looking at the time frame and the weather and you know when to harvest the crop. I'm telling you, the harvest for souls is now. And that message is for us. We need a a real compassion for the lost. There is an urgency there. I remember when when I was actually in... uh, public workplace, a government workplace. I had my own little personal excuses for my laziness or my sluggishness in that work. You see, where I worked, it wasn't allowed to talk about Jesus. I might get in trouble. So I quickly had to get over that because that's crummy, right? We talk about Jesus wherever we want. Come what may. Yeah, you be wise about it, but there's no place on this earth where you're not allowed to talk about Jesus. Forget that one. Or you say, well, nobody really even listens to me. I'm not a good speaker. I don't know what to say. Forget it. That's stupid. Open your mouth. Talk about Jesus. I might ruin a relationship if I tell them the truth about what is the Lord. And if I, if I speak too boldly about Jesus, then they might not ever want to talk to me again. That's none of your business. You're called to be faithful, brothers and sisters. And heaven forbid that you say you're just embarrassed. Heaven forbid. So how do you motivate this urgent service to the Lord in your own heart? Well, I believe this one thing that we have in our church that's so critical to life is we understand the importance of doctrine. Doctrine is important. Well, how so? How does this affect my life and my ministry to the community? Well, certainly we understand salvation, the doctrine of salvation, which means we understand a doctrine of depravity, that all men are dead in their sins, but we also understand the doctrine of the gospel call that God uses men and women to go out and explain the gospel to others. We understand the doctrine of election so that we know that whoever is elect is going to hear that call and respond. All this gives us confidence, but then there's also an urgency because we understand a doctrine of the end. A doctrine of hell. A doctrine of judgment. A doctrine of eternal consequences. We all know that men is lost. That men are lost. But that God has His elect in every corner. And we need to hear someone telling us, go tell them the Gospel. Tell them the truth. God uses men to accomplish His purposes and praise God He does. So there's an urgency. And before I leave this point, I want to just remind you, the reality is that when you go and tell others, most are going to reject it. Most are going to reject what you're saying. You're going to talk to them about Jesus. You're going to think and pray. And you're going to open your heart to them. And they're going to reject it. It's always been this way. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. It's impossible apart from a work of the Spirit. So many are going to reject it. We're still called to do it. Jesus talked about this as well in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That's where most people are. They're on that wide, easy path. And he's talking about the church. And those who enter into it by and those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. But that doesn't matter. Even though they reject it, we still go. We still tell. We still talk. Be encouraged that you need to go and tell and talk about Jesus. If you find yourself in a place and you just are feeling the pressure to say something, but you're scared to say it, you might just need to say it. Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Among those who are perishing, an aroma of death to death. And among those who are being saved, an aroma of life to life. In other words, we don't know which aroma we are giving when we share the Gospel with others, but it's none of our business. We need to do it. We need to be faithful. We need to urgently tell others the truth of Jesus Christ. Whether we're in church, whether we're in the community, whether we're serving somewhere else, it just doesn't matter. Tell the truth. And don't focus on results. The results are in God's hands. Just focus on being faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful in your families. Be faithful in your schools. Be faithful in your churches. Be faithful in your homeschool groups. Be faithful with your your workmates. Be faithful with those you work for and those that work under you. Be faithful. Be bold. So we see Jesus being the number one requirement for service. We have to know Jesus. We also see great motivation to be faithful as this woman, as Jesus was teaching His disciples and this woman was. We also see the great urgency that Jesus is calling us to. Fourthly, in verse 36, we see eternal impacts on this work. Verse 36, he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Sower and reaper are rejoicing together. Why? Because this is an eternal work that's happening. It's eternal. And the glory... Of God is truly our focus for everyone no matter where we're serving. The Old Testament saints certainly had sowed much seed. And some of those seeds had even landed in Samaria. This woman knew. She knew something about the Gospel. She knew something about a Savior. Sower and reaper rejoicing together for an eternal reward. God has decreed the ends, the salvation of a numerous people, but He's also decreed the means to achieve that ends. And that's the work of evangelism and ministry in life. In life by His redeemed people. By slaves He's redeemed for Himself for His own work. Notice John 15-16 where He talks about choosing people for His own family. He said, you did not choose Me, but I chose you. Why? And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He's not just talking about personal fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about bearing fruit in your ministry. The apostles went out from there three years later. You Remember, there was just 11 people left after Jesus died. And in the 40 days until His ascension, already people were becoming more and more aware of what had happened as Jesus revealed Himself to them as the resurrected Lord, and then after He went up to heaven, the church grew and spread through all the world. Those seeds that the apostles planted are now showing showing their their fruit all over the earth. There are billions of people who love Jesus. So, how do you actually reap your harvest? How do you how do you do the work that God has given you to do in the harvest day to day. Let me just make it very simple for you. Whatever you're doing, whoever God puts in front of your face, or now I should say whoever puts God puts on the screen that you're communicating with, that's an eternal moment. And take it seriously and pray that God gives you the words to say. Yeah, do you have to share the Gospel every time? No but you still need to show the love of Christ and speak to Christ of the hope that you have. You should always be ready to speak of the hope that you have in Christ. So you have to know Jesus. You have to have the right motivation and urgency and you have to see the eternal blessing. But fifthly, you need to recognize that you also have a role. Verse 37, we all have a role. Jesus says here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps kids when you think of sowing you need to be thinking of planting it's like putting seeds down that's called sowing you're sowing seeds and then in a few months you'll be reaping you'll be reaping a harvest cuz those seeds grow kids have any of you ever grown something have you ever planted a seed you re- let me see your hands what do you grow grow tree grow flower vegetable what do you grow remember? What? A flower. What did you grow, Felicity? You grew a garden. Well, so when we go out and we do God's work, we are growing seed or growing plants. We're spreading seeds. You see, when you plant a seed, you don't actually make it grow. You're trusting that the environment is going to produce the right kinds of things that that seed needs to to grow up into. It's the same for us. When we go out and share the good news, we're not actually doing the growing. We're throwing the seed out. There's one who makes the growth happen in both cases, and it's God. But you are competent to do the thing that He's given you to do. You have a role to play. You may be sowing. You may be reaping. Whatever you're doing, you need to do it as unto the Lord. We need to serve faithfully wherever God has placed us in the body of Christ. In this particular body, I was thinking of the phrase pull His weight. Have you ever said that about somebody? He's not pulling His weight. You know where that comes from? Does anyone know? It's a rowing term. Because when you had a a boat full of competitive rowers, you could tell if someone's not pulling their weight. They're just going through the motions. They look like everyone else, but they're not pulling. Well, the body of Christ is like that. If if you're not pulling your weight, if you're not doing your part in the ministry of God, then everyone else is going to feel it. And you know, the body of Christ is called a body for a reason. So what happens when your eyes don't pull their weight in your body? You need some glasses. If you're going to be able to read, you better put your glasses on. Because my eyes aren't pulling their weight, so I need, I need some help. Or your ears aren't pulling their weight. Well, you're not going to be able to hear everything in the conversation you're having. And you might think, well, I'm not an eye or an ear. I'm more like a toe in the body of Christ. People have told me that. Well, I'm just a toe. Have you ever broken your toe? If you break your toe and it's not pulling its weight, you're limping along. say, well, I'm not even a toe. I'm just a hair on the top of my head. That's what I am. I'm a hair. If you lose your hair, you've got problems up here. You have to wear a hat. You have to take special care. Your hair's not pulling its weight. We are like a body, all of us. And God's called each one of us to do a specific thing. And it's been determined by God. And we're standing on the shoulders of all those who came before us who pulled their weight. We are reaping the The fruit of the prayers that were prayed long ago for people who took their ministry seriously and pulled their weight. So no matter what your particular role is in the body, do it as unto the Lord. Do it with joy and not with groaning. This is John Calvin. Which of us, if we come to a reckoning, will be found more worthy of being punished for slothfulness than of being rewarded for diligence. To the best laborers, nothing else will be left than to approach God in all humility and implore forgiveness. But the Lord who acts toward us with the kindness of a father in order to correct our sloth and to encourage us who would otherwise be dismayed deigns to bestow upon us an undeserved reward This is so far from overturning justification by faith that it rather confirms it. For in the first place, how comes it that God finds in us anything to reward, but because He has bestowed it upon us by His Spirit? In other words, we're saying work hard unto the Lord. Not to gain our justification, but because of it. We plant, but God gives the increase. We're part of the body of Christ. We need to all do our parts. So I would remind you that your particular role is important. And if you're not doing something to encourage the body of Christ today, then you need to start. You've been brought here not just to soak up sermons and to hear teaching. You've been brought here to serve the body of Christ and to serve your community. It flows from here and it flows out. Whether you sow or reap, do it as unto the Lord. The last thing we see is God brings people in different ways by His providence. Look at verses 39-41. to Many Samaritans from the town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them and He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of His Word. So they believed because of the woman's testimony, but then they also believed because of His Word. First, they just want you to step back and notice what's happened. The Samaritans were people who were never touched, never talked to. This is important for us, too. There's probably people in your life, you drive by them, you see them, you, you think to yourself about them, and you're like, I'm not talking to that person. No way. It's too dangerous. Well, it might be dangerous. Be smart. It's too dangerous. It's too scary. These people are too mean. I just don't like them. Jesus stayed in that village. No other rabbi in the whole land would have stepped foot in that village. He stayed there for two days. The Messiah. The Messiah sent first to the Jews, stayed in that Samaritan village two days. This is an example for us. You may be asked to do things that you're not comfortable with. That the world finds abhorrent. You're going to do it anyway. But also look at the different ways that God uses to bring people to Himself. To bring people into regeneration and faith. First we see the woman's testimony. Individual witness to the truth of Jesus. But then we see Christ's own Word. The Word of God. And then look at the time frame. Some came immediately and some came after two days over time. So for us, we just need to be faithful. Trust God and His providence to do what He's going to do because it's always good and right. Be faithful with your friends, your family, your co-workers, people at church, in your community. Be faithful. You say, well, it's already been 15 years. Nothing's changed. Be faithful. You say, well, it's just so long. This person just gets harder and harder. Be faithful. You save nobody. Christ does the work. You're called to be faithful. And the timeline is in God's hands. You're called to be a bold and faithful witness. To give the reason for your hope that you have. So we've seen six reasons that impact our service to God. Six things. First, knowing Jesus. Secondly, being mission driven in our purpose and our faithfulness. Thirdly, having an urgency. Fourthly, recognizing that this is eternal. Fifthly, recognizing that you also have a role, and then sixthly, remembering that God will use whatever means and in whatever timing He decides in His providence to accomplish His purpose. So let's conclude just by looking at verses forty. Well, look at verse forty-two. They said to the woman, "Is no longer because of what you said that we believe; for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior." Of the world. That's the goal for all of us. That everyone would know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's the goal with our children. With our family. With our parents. With our our whole community. Everyone that we're in contact with. Even those we don't know. Even our politicians. Paul says we need to pray for them. They need to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world the growth of god's church is completely in his hands so christ spends 2 days in samaria his disciples we don't know but it doesn't seem like they ever went back until after he was died and resurrected and ascended to heaven but we do see this is part of his plan in acts chapter 1 verse 8 he tells his apostles how the how the kingdom is going to spread he said you'll receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in jerusalem in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's really an outline of the of, book of Acts. We see the work in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Those are the four parts of Acts. But God has a plan. And in His providence, it included Samaria. And in His providence, it includes Greenville and in Greene County. And it includes bringing a people to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit been poured out in your heart? Do you recognize that hell is a real place? Kids, hell is a real place. Do you know hell is real? Hell is real. It's forever and ever. All of us need to remember hell is real. You could die today. It doesn't matter whether you're two years old or 92. You don't know the day of your death. It could happen any moment. If you're living for something other than Jesus and His glory, why are you resisting? Certainly Christ came and He lived a perfect life and He died and He rose again and ascended into heaven. He paid for the sins of those who were not worthy of any of His time. And everyone who believes on Him will have eternal life. Is this just information for you? Do you just hear these words and you think, yes, I I kind of believe that. If it's just information, it's not saving information. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Are you willing to live your life for Him and Him alone? This is what He's called us to. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to You in the name of Jesus. We thank You that You have given us a Savior. Lord, our gratitude, our thanksgiving is overwhelmed when we think of what You have done for us. We thank You that You saved this Samaritan woman. That you even stayed in that village with your apostles, showing them the truth of Christ and God. People that no one else would talk to, Lord, you spent time with them, and how much more should we share with those around us the hope of our calling, the hope of our salvation? Lord, please help us. You know we are weak. We're weak in our flesh. Our spirits certainly are willing to go. Our spirits say, like Peter, we're willing to die for You, and yet we're so quick to deny You. Please help us. Turn our hearts to serve You better. Turn our hearts to speak up and talk about the good news of Jesus Christ with others. May no moment be wasted May every conversation be a gospel conversation. May you open our eyes to truth and encourage our souls in Jesus' name. Amen.